Mm-hmm. I started to notice and appreciate how often Jesus and other parts of the Bible talk about uh, the poor and uh, and God's concern for the poor and how we were to be concerned for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Um, and yet I, I saw Jesus' interaction with them and he never stepped into their presence in kind of a patronizing, kind of paternalistic way. He always stepped into their presence, appreciating their value. Three, two, one. Well, welcome to another Nerding Out with That Nerdy Catholic. I am Seth Payne, That Nerdy Catholic. And uh, I, uh, this is just, I will continue to say this is a blessing to be able to have conversations with uh, just amazing people, smart people, uh, people who are doing just really interesting. Uh, and well, you'll see what, what we're talking about today, but interesting things throughout the world. Uh, interesting areas of, of science, of, you know, we've talked to uh, someone in psychology, but today we're going to be talking economics and, uh, and in a special, uh, a special area of economics. Uh, we're going to be talking to Todd Engelson, who is the president of Peer Servants, um, and I'm going to ask him to share a little bit about what that is all about in just a minute. Uh, but uh, but this is a special uh, conversation for me because Peer Servants is an organization that I have been involved in in the past. I was volunteer with Peer Servants for about 10 years. Uh, I've been in touch for, for the past 10 years as well and, uh, you know, here and there. Uh, and, you know, who's, who knows what the future will hold with uh, my involvement in Peer Servants. Uh, but Peer Servants is uh, mainly a volunteer organization. And so... As we're talking, if you're interested in, in the work that Peer Servants is doing, uh, check them out at peerservants.org and, uh, and see if that is something that you would be interested in getting involved in. So welcome, Todd. Good to have you here. Thank you, Seth. Great to be with you. So uh, before we get into a little bit about your background, you know, like all the other guests we've had, uh, the first episode we're going to be doing, we're going to be doing two episodes with Todd. Uh, this first episode, we're going to be going into a little bit of his background, how he got into economics, and then how he got into uh, microfinance and working uh, with uh, in peer servants. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of a an overview of what peer servants is and and what it does? So, peer servants is an organization currently of around 250 volunteers from around the world. And they come alongside of 10 global partners that we have. Uh, And these organizations, these partners are based in countries around the world. They are autonomous entities uh, that have a vision to serve their community, especially through economic empowerment. That's where it starts, but it often expands beyond that into areas of education and youth empowerment and even beyond that. We'll speak to that uh, more in, in the minutes ahead. Um, and they invite us in. They invite peer servants in to, to strengthen them, to build their capacity to serve more of the materially poor. And so those volunteers then align uh, with one of those 10 partners to do that. So right now, those 10 partners collectively are serving tens of thousands of families among the materially poor. And our 250 volunteers have the 
really the privilege of coming alongside and, and strengthening them. Um, we'll talk more about kind of what those volunteers do ahead, but that's in a nutshell, that's what Peer Servants Great. is. So this episode, as I said, we're going to be talking um, a little bit about how Todd got into economics and then microfinance and peer servants. In the next episode, we're going to be diving deeper into microfinance, how it works, and especially um, the work that peer servants is doing uh, with all of with all of the partners around the world. Uh, and uh, as I said, I've been in, had been involved with peer servants uh, for a number of years, and so you know, both Todd and I will be going into stories. Uh, of some just really great trips around the world uh, with peer servants in the next episode. But first, uh, why don't we go back and tell us about how you got into economics. So I actually studied to become and actually became an actuary. And uh, I was an actuary at John Hancock here in Boston for 20 years. And I loved it. Um, and so uh, so while not an economist per se, certainly that is in the area of finance and risk management in areas related to economics. And uh, uh, really from day one of, of pursuing to become an actuary, taking these actuarial exams and all of that, um, I thought someday I'd like to go apply risk management, not just to the materially rich, but maybe to the materially poor. And uh, over time, I eventually heard of something called microfinance. And the founders of what is today, Peer Servants, called me up and just asked me uh, if I would be interested in getting involved in an organization that was, you know, uh, addressing this area. And when I heard more about it, I thought, wow, that sounds like a fascinating model to put capital right into the hands of the materially poor and let them you know, work with it. And so I became their first volunteer. I'm not the founder of Peer Servants, but I was their first volunteer. And over time, uh, I kind of found out that's even more of my passion than being an actuary. So, uh, so while I started as an actuary at John Hancock in 1984, I transitioned to full-time with Peer Servants in 2004, 20 years later. And, uh, and again, have basically taken many of those same kind of risk management principles that an actuary applies or an economist looks at, um, but applied them more to, um, to trying to manage risk more effectively for the materially poor. So that was my transition from, from the corporate world to uh, heading up peer servants today. So before we get more into peer servants, uh, Tell us a little bit about what an actuary does. <laughs> uh, I, th I, think that's a, I think that's a job that most people have not uh, heard of or really thought that much about. So the tagline of, uh, of being an actuary is basically putting a dollar value on risk. Mm. So if you know an actuary, chances are that actuary works for an insurance company. That tends to be the, the primary employer of, uh, of actuaries. And, um, and so they're looking at a number of different risks that we face, especially related to insurance. So it may be the risk of, um, of premature death, and you want to have uh, a means of providing for your survivors should that happen. Mm -hmm. It may be the risk of prolonged life, and you want to make sure you have sufficient income, that you're not mm -hmm. going to outlive your income. Um, it could be the risk of poor health and you want to be able to insure against that. So there's a number of those kinds of risks that actuaries look at, and they are charged with trying to set a, 
a price such that uh, we can cover all of those risks and hopefully you know, return something to the shareholders mm -hmm. that are providing the capital to, to do that. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's basically what uh, an actuary does. Actuaries do a number of different things though. Um, and uh, the, the, the overarching way of describing it is putting a dollar value on risk. What got you into, or what made you interested in becoming an actuary? There is an interesting story behind that. Uh, when I was in high school, they offered, and perhaps they still offer, something called the National Math Exam. Now, this exam was brutal. I don't know how many questions there were on it, but if you could get like two of them right, you were in the top 10% or something of those who took this exam. And so I remember taking that exam, maybe getting two of those right. I don't even remember how many I actually got right. But I do remember my math teacher in 10th grade coming alongside of me and saying, Todd, I have a great career for you. Um, you should become an actuary. Well, that was my first time hearing about an actuary. But as I studied more about it, I thought, you know, that that actually does sound kind of like an interesting career. And, and back then, it was actually rated as one of the top careers to get into. Um, and uh, so I went to the University of North Carolina. I had a wonderful professor there in actuarial science by the name of Robert Mann, Bob Mann. And uh, he did nothing but turn me on to being even more excited about becoming an actuary. And so, you know, that's what that's what I did. And uh, you have to take these series of pretty tough uh, professional exams to become an actuary. But over time, I got through those and and then became what's called a fellow in the Society of Actuaries at, at John okay. Hancock. So what was exciting about being an actuary to you? That's a that's a that's another very good question, because uh, actually, I. In my time at John Hancock, I, I specialized more in the area of product development. Actuaries do tend to specialize in different areas. And so I specialized in that area. And over time, I became vice president of, of, of various product lines and whatnot. Um, and so uh, for me, really, the numbers were not necessarily the exciting part about becoming an actuary. Some actuaries just love numbers. And you know, numbers were okay. I like numbers. But... Uh, but that wasn't necessarily the most exciting thing to me. The most exciting thing to me was actually being able to develop new products that could meet the needs uh, of, of our policyholders. And, um, and through that, to work with people in a number of different departments within John Hancock to kind of get that product out on the street. <clears throat> now, the fascinating thing to me about doing that is um, you have to manage people that you really don't have direct oversight of. And you have to find ways to motivate them and get them to work well together as a team. And so I would often say at John Hancock that I considered myself much more of an anthropologist than an actuary, mm. because I had to study the cultures of different departments. And each, each mm -hmm. department in a big company has a different culture. And uh, I had to figure out how can I get these cultures to work best together. I had no idea that that was going to be very critical in the years ahead, you know, leading an organization like this. But even within a Boston-based, uh, you know, pretty large organization, there were these many different cultures that would vary even by floor. And my task really as the leader was how do I get these different cultures to work as well together as mm -hmm. possible so that we can get a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Th there's, I can definitely see the roots 
of of a lot of the peer servants work in that. Uh, mm-hmm. But you said also at the beginning that you had this had this feeling that you wanted to be able to do this risk management work not just for the materially well off, but also the materially poor. Uh, what was what was the root of that? You know, did you have an experience early on that made you uh, aware of you know the plight of the materially poor or you know, concern for uh, for the materially poor? Yeah, interestingly enough, Seth, there really uh, wasn't a lot of experiences growing up. I grew up in a very homogeneous middle class America, small town kind of setting where where uh, my access, especially to the extremely maturely poor, was very limited. But I do remember one day uh, walking the campus in Chapel Hill and just having this sense that someday uh, I was going to do something in the area of economic development uh, for the maturely poor. And I have no idea where that came from. Once I got out of the university, I had some opportunities to go to Honduras and Haiti and South Africa. And I would say those trips really confirmed that desire. When I uh, when I saw how hardworking the materially poor were, how, how much of a good investment they were, not so much just what their needs were, yes, there were needs, but more so the opportunities. Uh, I think that just confirmed my desire to say, I would love to find a way to, to get capital and access to opportunity into their hands so that they can provide for their families, pursue their own dreams. And, uh, and that's ultimately, I think, what kind of fueled the eventual transition from John Hancock to Peer Servants. So then when you started uh, Peer Servants, what was your involvement? So I started as their first volunteer, but there were three founders. And mm-hmm. uh, really my first involvement was uh, nothing had been done yet. We, mm-hmm. we were pulling together uh, basically a white paper. And in mm-hmm. all of our naivete, that white paper solved world poverty in about five minutes. We thought this was <laughs> going to be. And, but we developed a white paper that basically um, went and, and captured a bit of what was happening in some other parts of the world within microfinance, especially in Bangladesh through Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we kind of envisioned we could do something like that as well. And so this white paper kind of captured what the potential impact could be. And then we sent that out to a number of North American organizations who we thought, you know, might want to work with us in something like this. Mm-hmm. And eventually one of them responded, an organization in Mexico City. So that's where our first partnership took place is in, mm-hmm. in Mexico. So talk about the, the beginnings of that. Uh, what were some of the what were some of the successes? What were some of the uh, maybe the stumbling points along the way? Then starting off with that first uh, that first partnership. Well, I would say we certainly stepped in is what I might suggest is a typical North American posture of stepping in. If we needed to go save the world, you know, we needed to really go and address these issues of poverty. And so we worked with that other North American organization who was well well entrenched there. They did some very good work in Mexico City in the area of development. And uh, we worked with them to establish this first microfinance program. And I'm, I'm relieved to say, looking back, that we quickly learned that the Mexicans could do this themselves um, mm-hmm. and actually do it probably much better than we could. And so um, very quickly, that program became Mexican staffed um, even Mexican governed, and 
uh, the investors became Mexican. And so we uh, could step back and actually come to appreciate we had as much to learn from them, to mm-hmm. receive from them, to figure out how can we do this effectively as we did to offer them. And that mm-hmm. sent your servants off on a much different trajectory from that mm-hmm. first partnership than you know the way we had entered it uh, just yeah. a few years before that. Yeah. Well, I want to step back then and think about you know, your your involvement both in uh, in and being an actuary, and then moving into the microfinance and working with peer servants. What part did your your faith play in both of those? And then, how did that combine with your with your skill and your 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 math and what I think is so interesting about, it, especially about an, an area like microfinance, is that it is not just a it is not just a faith thing. It, it's not just a brain thing. You know, it, it's so easy to see fields that are that are very clearly one or the other. Not not that you can't have both in in any field, but microfinance is is uh, definitely a, a big combination of both. So, so what part? Even in act, being an actuary, talking about your concern for for the people that you were serving, what part did your faith play in that? Yeah, well, I um, I would say as one who who would love to follow Jesus and follow Him much better than I do, um, that uh, particularly when it comes to the needs of others and just being other centered, you know, Jesus mm-hmm. talked a lot about that, and He actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked a lot about how that's actually the path to your own life becoming much more fulfilling. And uh, I think we live in a time and an age where it's very easy to become self-centered, and and yet Mm -hmm. uh, it's really in the path of serving others um, that we gain um, even more of that abundant life that Jesus talked Mm -hmm. about. I would say, in um, specifically as it relates to microfinance, um, again, coming out of the background that I came out of, which had very limited access to you know, the extremely materially poor, mm-hmm. I started to notice and appreciate how often Jesus and other parts of the Bible talk about uh, the poor and, mm-hmm. uh, and God's concern for the poor and how we were to be concerned for the poor, the widow, the orphan. Um, and yet I, I saw Jesus interaction with them and he never stepped into their presence in kind of a patronizing kind of paternalistic way. He always stepped mm-hmm. into their presence, appreciating their value. He mm-hmm. always kept them in control. Um, and if I can put it that way, he, he would step into their presence and there would be obvious needs of either healing or whatever else it may be. And yet he would almost always enter their presence with a question to the effect of, what would you like me to do? Mm-hmm. And so he kept the vision theirs. And I think that's something I've learned over the years um, from, from you know studying or just uh, reading about Jesus um, and then trying to apply ourselves is, is stepping into the presence of, um, of the poor and realizing they have huge assets. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really just a matter of giving them access to some opportunities to take advantage of the assets, the, the, the drive, the, the desire to work hard um, mm-hmm. so that they can fulfill their dreams. They have dreams just like we do. And, uh, but often they are so limited in access to opportunities 
that um, you know reaching those dreams becomes very very challenging. I've had a number of experiences in my life in, in different church settings where you you either run into a mindset, and I'm I'm talking about myself as well because I know I've I've had this attitude before where either you 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 see all the the issues of poverty in the world and you say well well that's that's important but but i need to focus on on the spiritual as if the the issues of poverty and the spiritual issues were were separated and you know even looking at you know a lot of the like you were saying a lot of the gospel passages where jesus was confronted with the materially poor and the people that were that were sick and broken and almost seeing that it's like well god you know jesus was being loving but you know that's not the kind of thing that i need to be concerned with i need to be you know tell people about jesus but then i you know there's that you know mismatch of well what did he do who did he talk to who did he see um but then once once you do get that concern then it is very easy like you were saying to go into a mode of okay well you know we don't it, it's terrible that there are poor people out there so i need to go fix it mm-hmm. exactly exactly yeah. and i think you know the by far the most effective means of community development is what we call asset-based community development it's an easy thing to remember a b c d asset-based community development where you really step into a setting and you may think oh i'm bringing god into this setting uh, it's rather presumptuous of us, but um, but the reality is God is already there. And it's a matter of uh, then finding ways, again, the assets God has placed there and um, getting as good a return as we can, you know, on those assets that are there. Um, and, you know, this really gets arguably to a, a, a an area beyond perhaps economics to... Um, to what I would call the kingdom, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus talked a lot about this kingdom, and it wasn't mm-hmm. a political kingdom or whatever, but it was a kingdom that um, had not only a spiritual element to it, and that's a very critical element to it, but um, but a material or economic and a social, and uh, and so that back to your question of my faith, when when I pray those words, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, I have to admit there was a time in my life not that long ago where I would pray that prayer and I would think, Jesus, wishful thinking, that's never going to happen. We're not going to see your kingdom on earth as it is in Mm -hmm. heaven. Then over time, I think I came to appreciate that the problem was not Jesus' vision, but kind of my buying in, my willingness to go do what he told me to do. Um, Mm -hmm. to make that become reality. And so now, you know, I get to wake up every day um, and just think, Jesus, how can we work together to extend more of the kingdom of heaven to earth? And uh, that's that's an exciting life. Um, And and especially when you can focus on the materially poor who, who lack access to the things that Jesus invested so much of his life in while he was here, of um, people having physical well-being as well as spiritual well-being. So before we get into uh, all the details in the next episode, 
why don't you tell us the 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 share with us the the values of peer servants? It's, it's something mm-hmm. that I've I've always appreciated. Mm-hmm. We actually now have what we would call our seven core values, uh, and uh, it really starts with the centrality of Christ. We we want to honor Jesus um, not just in what we do, but how we do it. And and you know the one word that comes to mind among many with that would be humility. Uh, we want to step into the presence of others um, upon being invited, and we'll talk more about that later, uh, but with humility and with a way that shows respect for them, people of any faith, uh, mm-hmm. to, to really step into their presence and show that respect. So keeping Christ central in how we do and making sure that all we do um, honors him. The, the second core value we have is uh, our what we call the power of prayer. And you can't step into many of these uh, areas or without an appreciation that, that the needs are bigger than you and, uh, and that we have to maintain close communication with God. So the power of prayer is very important. You know, Jesus said to us, you have not because you ask not. And, uh, and so we're just reminded we really need to go to him often and have close communion with him. Uh, the third is what we call the foundation of fellowship. We spend a long time investing in relationships and building a, a foundation of trust in these partnerships that we'll talk about in a bit. And uh, that's really critical because uh, most of the rest of the world gets things done through relationships more so than transactions. North Americans mm-hmm. tend to be much more transactional, but most of the rest of the world focuses on relationships. And so if you build a strong foundation of fellowship, that can get you through some inevitable bumps in the road that uh, come with mm. partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth uh, um, core value that we have is uh, the value of volunteers. We work just through volunteers. Seth, you were one of our best volunteers, and we still <laughs> thank God for you, given the impact that, that you've had. But there are many other volunteers who are very much involved in this, and it's fascinating to head up an organization that's made up of all volunteers with the exception of myself. And um, volunteers just bring passion, they bring expertise, they bring a number of positive things. And so there's a lot of value in volunteers. Um, We have uh, the next is what we call the development of disciples. And if I go back to Jesus' vision of uh, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, I think his strategy for that vision to become reality was the development of disciples. Uh, people who would be all in, people who would say, I'm gonna give my life for this. And that's really what a disciple does. Uh, the last two, um, the, the, this, uh, the second to the last is actually our newest. It's called the impact of inverted. Hmm. And uh, you know that's the kingdom. The kingdom is a very upside down, inverted kind of kingdom relative to the ways hmm. of the world. And so we've seen um, how what Jesus kind of gave us as signs of the kingdom of heaven among us would be that you're going to see the last becoming first Mm -hmm. and the first willing to become last. Mm -hmm. That's just one of many signs. Jesus says, hey, if you want to be first, great, go become the servant of all. If you want to gain your life, lose your life. And so we we embrace that, especially the last becoming first. We don't want to just make the last second to the last. 
we want to invest in them and we think they're worthy of our investment that the last can become first and we'll talk a little bit about that in, in the mm -hmm. next segment and then finally perhaps our most distinctive core value is what we call the reign of reciprocity and that is you know what god has actually prepared um a materially poor woman living in what we might call a hut in northern uganda he's prepared her to bless us just as much as he's prepared us to bless them and if we can mm -hmm. step into her presence and others like her with that posture of we have something to receive, not just give, then we've left her empowered. If we step into her presence saying, oh, thank God I'm finally here for you, you can leave a million dollars at her front door and you've left her impoverished. And so that reign of reciprocity is very key to, to our values. So those are those seven values that hopefully shape how we operate. You know, the, the, most, the most impactful of all of those values for me has been the reign of reciprocity. And I know that that I have had many lessons uh, in my life, especially through all of the, uh, the peer service partners that I have had the opportunity to visit. Um, but why don't you share with us one or two lessons that you have learned thinking about the reign of reciprocity from some of uh, the partners or entrepreneurs or, or anyone that you have worked with through mm -hmm. peer servants? Mm -hmm. I would say one of the key ones is, because <laughs> I learn it every day, the materially poor uh, live in very, very close dependence on God. They don't question this. This is something they embrace mm -hmm. they, uh, and they value. For me, growing up where, you know, pretty much, and to this day, where pretty much I could have my basic needs met, you know, I would envision dependence on God as like a terrible place to be. You know, it's like, oh no, I've gone, you know, to the end of my rope and beyond. But I've learned from them is really poor to embrace the end of the rope, if I can put it that way. Um, and to have to develop a much closer relationship with intimacy with God. Um, and so, you know, in this kingdom, again, we've got the spiritual, the social, and the economic realm. I've learned a lot from the materially poor in that spiritual realm of building intimacy with God. Mm -hmm. The other area I would say I've learned is in the social realm, building intimacy and, and interdependence with others. Again, you know, growing up in this part of the world, we kind of value independence and self-reliance mm -hmm. and all of these things. And yet there is such beauty in interdependence, really embracing each other, having a strong social network. And so when we think within peer servants of how can we extend the kingdom here in North America, obviously it's less so in the material realm. We, we have many of those things already, but we lack a lot in the social and the spiritual realm. And those are the areas that we are learning and being blessed by uh, materially poor around the world. I had a, the, the opportunity, the, the wonderful opportunity to go and spend a year uh, with the peer servants partner, Kaede Sunchis in, uh, in Cusco, Peru. And f I know f for me, that, that was a huge thing. You know, it, is, it, it made me realize, my, my time there, it made me realize that it is so easy for us to, going back to what we were talking about, about as, uh, as Westerners, having this idea that we can just go in and fix situations fix you know and help people just by fixing things that we do have this this idea that it, the the most important thing the best thing is this independence 
And, and so we're going to go and we're going to help lift people up economically and we're going to help them become economically independent. And, uh, and then we are going, they're going to be just like us. Uh, mm -hmm. but I remember, um, the, the first trip I ever took with peer servants was to, uh, Nigeria. And so, you know, Todd was leading this group from, uh, Grace Chapel, a church in uh, Lexington, Massachusetts. And it was one of the days and we met with a large group of entrepreneurs and a number of them stood up and they were telling the same story that, that they came to the, uh, the peer servants partner. They were able to receive a loan, start building their business. And my, my thought would be, they would say, and that, and then I, you know, I got another loan and I became more economically independent and I was able to do all the things I wanted to do. But the one thing that they all had in common was they said, I was able to make more money, build my business, and I was able to help others. I was able exactly. to give more money to my church. I, you know, they, we have this image and in a lot of cases, unfortunately, it's true when missionaries go into other countries and they give and they give and they give and they say, we don't expect anything back. And one of my big lessons from that trip and a lot of the stuff that I did with peer servants was that that model of giving and expecting nothing in return has done so much damage throughout the world. And when I realized that there are these people that, and when, when they were becoming economically successful, it was still only at the level of, you know, maybe a few hundred dollars a year. And still, out of that little that they gained, that they were so excited that they could give back, that they could help others. In fact, Seth, if I can add, I, you're, you're telling that story is triggering a memory in my own mind of a, of a Nigerian chicken farmer. So I've learned a lot about chicken farming that I never knew. Uh, but uh, many uh, micro-entrepreneurs have taken out microloans to do some kind of chicken farming. They may either raise broilers or layers. Broilers mm -hmm. are those where they sell the meat. Layers, they're uh, those they sell the eggs. And this woman uh, was in kind of a focus group we had gathered just to hear their stories, to see what can we learn from the impact or the lack thereof of how we could refine our model. But this woman stood up and with all joy, she talked about getting this microloan to uh, buy these chickens for layers for the eggs. And when she got the very first eggs, she took them and ran and gave them to her pastor. And the woman spoke with such joy of the first time she could give back. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it really touched me because I sat there and said, Todd, you have always been in a place in your life where you could give almost to the point where you kind of feel guilty about what you're giving or not giving or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I have never experienced that kind of joy that that woman was talking about of just being able to give to somebody else. Yeah. And so I've, that story stayed with me to just say, God, thank you for putting me in a position where I can give. Help me give wisely, be a good steward, but um, help me not miss out on the joy of just being yeah. able to give. 
Yeah, and that that it makes me think of. You know, I've always uh, struggled thinking about tithing at church. Mm-hmm. You know, where it says in the Bible, "You must give our first fruits." It's like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean the first check I write? When we're dealing with with cash and checks and all that stuff, it it it, it doesn't really make that much sense. It's like I've always remembered asking God, well, "What does that mean?" But to hear that story, that she that was literally her first fruits, the first eggs. And it wasn't this obligation that she felt that she had to fulfill, but she was now in a position where she was, you know, where she was stronger economically mm-hmm. and that she wanted to, that the first eggs that she got, she wanted to go to her pastor. Exactly. And that joy, that joy is a sign that we're experiencing the kingdom. Back mm-hmm. to that word kingdom. And, you know, the words of Jesus come to mind from Matthew 13, 44, where he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like um, this man who found treasure in a field. Mm. And then Jesus says something very interesting. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to just purchase mm-hmm. that field. Yeah. I think if that was me, I'd be like, well, in my kind of, you know, sorrow or, or concern or worry, you know, I went and sold yeah. everything. No, in his joy. And uh, so I think that's a sign of the kingdom among us is when we experience the, that joy uh, in, in the midst yeah. of being able to give. Yeah. Well, we're going to be going into uh, more examples, more stories in the next episode, talking about peer servants and its work in microfinance. Um, but before we end this episode, I have one more question to ask you. Other than economics, microfinance, what are one or two things that you really nerd out about? Oh, uh, well, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I'll go ahead and do it. Um, I nerd out about North Carolina basketball. So (laughs) I am a big North Carolina Char Heel fan. I actually went to school at the same time as Michael Jordan did. Now, he doesn't know that. uh, (laughs) You you weren't weren't hanging out all the time? (laughs) No. But uh, I've um, chilled out a little in my older years here. But boy, there would be a day where um, if there was a North Carolina basketball game on, I was all in. And I think at some point down the road, I figured out that they couldn't hear my coaching through the television. So, um, <laughs> so I've kind of eased up a little. Um, but that that's certainly one of my idiosyncrasies uh, that I nerd out about. Um, beyond that, uh, I'd say it's just being blessed with this global family that, uh, that I've really been blessed with and the relationships that come from that that kind of go far beyond uh, far beyond microfinance or peer servants. Um, what a tremendous blessing, a very, very rich, fulfilling life it's created for me and my family. Well, and as, uh, as Todd said earlier, going over the values, uh, one of the values of peer servants is the, the value of volunteers. And peer servants, as he said, is a volunteer organization. Uh, I, I have to say, I have been blessed so much through through peer servants, through volunteering with peer servants. And the experience, I've had three experiences of uh, international conferences and being able to get together with men and women from all around the world who are doing this work in microfinance and just to see 
the the beauty of the diversity of of all these people who are coming together for this one uh, this one mission of helping the materially poor. So uh, as I said, next episode we're going to be going more into peer servants and microfinance. But if this is something that has kind of piqued your interest, head over to peerservants.org and check out the work that Peer Servants is doing, all of the the partners that they partner with, and uh, and see if that's something that you would be interested in in becoming a part of. And uh, so I so Todd, thank you for joining us today, and thank uh, you. and we'll talk to you more next week. Well, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please like it, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and uh, also head over to uh, Nerdy Catholic Tees. Nerdy Catholic Tees is the other little venture of the Nerdy Catholic world that's being built here. Uh, here's one. It's a little mashup of Doctor Who and C.S. Lewis, uh, The Last Battle, uh, further up and further in. Uh, just lots of quirky, nerdy teas over there and other products to, uh, to help you show the world that you love your faith and you are a nerd as well. So head over to nerdycatholicteas.com. Use the coupon code thatnerdycatholic for 10% off of your order. Well, thank you for again for joining us. We'll see you again next week. God bless. Shut down.